1: Over two months in 1781, a British force out in North America found itself under siege, but not from the American Revolutionary Forces, nor from the French, but from the Spanish. War had come to Pensacola on the Gulf of Mexico, as the Spanish Empire, which had entered the fray two years earlier, sought to press the the strategic advantage of Britain being distracted trying to fight the forces of Washington. Pensacola is not a story that you would call mainstream. Until now. Earlier this month, Josh Proven published Every Hazard and Fatigue on the Siege of Pensacola. Tonight, he tells all about the siege of the American Revolution that has slipped from common knowledge and why it matters. Up next on the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonic Wars pod, where despite the very sort of formal sounding intro, the, the, the farce has descended. Um, once again, I have Josh Prover, Master of Adventures in History Land, author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, Wild East and Every Hazard and Fatigue on the Siege of Pensacola. You've quite obviously worked out that's what we're here to talk about tonight. However, where has the, the, the farce come from? Um, well, Josh, for reasons that I'm not entirely clear on, busted out a pair of shades and started looking terribly gangster. There was a sort of Miami 5-0 kind of vibe about him. Um, I'm not suggesting that he's like some kind of drug lord who was, you know, about to run, um, run a, a delivery for his cartel through the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, Josh is pulling faces as if to say, do you know that though, Zach? Do you really? Um, but I decided to, to, to just take the piss because let's be honest, that's what I do quite well um, in the absence of any content or historical knowledge and so I broke out um, the the old pistol and by pistol I do mean the uh, reproduction flintlock <laughs> and the tricorn hat because I felt it was period appropriate and so whirling around social media as we speak is a rather ridiculous image of Josh in his shades and me in a tricorn waving a pistol all around attempting to look gangster but catastrophically failing doing so. None of which, of course, is of any relevance to you or the siege. It's just an indication of how seriously we take our job here. Josh, welcome back. I would say, how are you? But the irony is that you and I recorded precisely 24 hours ago. So I'm doubtful that any particularly earth-shattering thing has happened in your life, although our listeners don't know that we were 24 hours ago having this conversation because this is the the magic and, and... witchcraft that is podcasting so they've had plenty of time in between Uh, but good to see you buddy siege of pensacola because i'm going to dive in but i'm going to sort of dive in in an indirect route why is going to be my my dead simple thing in that i know this is what you do right so you did the marcia and jack campaign that's that's sort of a bit more mainstream in the sense that people know about the the wellesley bit because some guy called arthur rocks up and so everybody talks about that and then Arthur goes home, and everybody kind of just loses interest after that point. But I can get the the Maratha and Jack campaign, and and why that's interesting. Not to say that Pensacola isn't interesting, but I can see that as being more common knowledge. Why go for Pensacola? Because you're you're drifting towards the dark side, my friend. You're straying into the 18th century, and this this is a worrying development. You you go much further beyond 1775, and People are going to start whispering about you. Yeah, they're going to think I'm one of those
2: dangerous um, uh, enlightenment types, uh, you know, lace war people uh who, who wear who wear wigs and and are flamboyant and all those things that the
1: 19th century hates. Um, I mean there's nothing wrong with wearing lace and being flamboyant. You do you, buddy. Um, we have had the conversation before about how lace just doesn't work with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 not a story that people know. Why why pick it up and run with it? Because you have done. Mm. It's
2: it goes back a little bit the, the the seed, the planting of the seed, you might say. Um I had been vaguely aware that the Spanish were involved in the American Revolution. Uh, a lot of general histories of the American Revolution mention in a paragraph somewhere that the Spanish got involved at some point uh, towards the end. And it's usually implied in those that it's mostly monetary assistance and that uh, on on or maritime, or if they're really detailed, they will mention the siege of Gibraltar. But as you can tell from 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 that summary, uh, nothing particularly is going to grab you and say, "Oh, let's." Uh, I, I I that sounds like a very interesting theater of the war. I should go and check that out. Uh, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know where they were fighting practically, and neither did I until. Uh, Until I ran across a a gentleman by the name of uh, Chas Maynard. And shortly before this, I had actually seen a painting done by David Rowlands of uh, Captain um, Johnson's battery of the Royal Artillery uh, at Pensacola and so this is this was like named the siege of pensacola so i looked at that and i think i must have from that point looked at the wikipedia page and said oh okay there was a battle down there um i have a uh, my fa- family have a have a certain um association with florida so and i've been to pensacola a couple of times so i thought oh that's cool i didn't know that move on with my life then Chaz Mena appears on my timeline doing this live tweet and that was the cool thing um, about uh, the siege of Pensacola. And he was really detailed about it. We followed each other. We're good friends now. He uh, also then uh, a few years later he he became, um, I believe, it was the artist in residence at Colonial Williamsburg, and he uh, artist historian in residence, possibly. Uh, and he uh, did this impression of Bernardo de Galvez, who was the Spanish. Uh, Commander in Chief on the Gulf Coast. I didn't know any of this at the time. He's just uh, a buddy of mine, dressing up like a Spanish officer, and, and educating people. And then, then again, Chaz reappears magically, as he does, uh, and he fr- from his from his from his magical cave in Miami, and he 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 does this special, this PBS special, a one man show where he takes you through the entire campaign as Galvez himself it's remarkably good you can watch it on youtube do that and that is where i got the idea that this is a story that needs to be told we can tell this story i didn't think i would get the opportunity to though because frankly um sources are a little vague just off you know coming at it from enthusiasm basically especially if you live in the uk and Uh, Just out of pure idle curiosity one day, I tapped Pensacola and the right date range into the National Archives Discovery Catalogue, and it came back with ridiculous amounts of entries from the British headquarters documents in North America, and I said to myself, right, I need to get in touch with Andrew Bamford at Helion now, (laughs) and... um, really it was just like a, a very organic train like many of my books it's half accident half design the pandemic happened to hit roughly around this time and i thought no better time to basically commit to a new project and as i grew um more acquainted with it and the characters and especially Bernardo de Galvez um uh i i got so wrapped up in it that t- to this day i am not letting go of the subject
1: <laughs> willingly okay so let's start doing some some history behind all of this then we need to strip this back in terms of context now i'm not going to go all the way back to why does the american revolution happen people there there was a an episode quite a while back the start of a um mini series some of which admittedly was exclusive but there's enough in the back catalogue for you to be able to deal with that go scroll back through um and whilst you're doing so why not leave a review you know shameless um ad right there um but we're not going to go back that far but i do want to talk about the spanish empire around this time um because we have this If you know much about the Napoleonic Wars and the Peninsular War, you know that by the time you get to 1808, the Spanish Empire is a crippled and dying beast. Um, Certainly by comparison to what it was two or three hundred years earlier. Um, But we're, we're a little bit before that point, so we're about 30 years before. You would expect the Empire to be in decline. But where where exactly are we at in terms of that that state of the empire and sort of the the hopes and aspirations um well perhaps we actually will leave hopes and aspirations of this to a a separate question but you know where where is the spanish empire at who's on the throne who's who's really in control um how do we how do we understand spain at this point in time
2: And understand Spain at
1: this time in the sense of
2: reform, uh, enlightened reform, we have on the throne at the second, Carlos the third, and he is the one of the Bourbon uh, kings of Spain, who came to power after the war of the Austrian succession. And these are reforming enlightened monarchs. These people are f- of French descent coming in from Louis XIV's family, and these guys all want to fix Spain, which was in serious trouble at the time of the War of the Spanish Succession. And it was the abiding uh will of the Bourbon kings to try and right the ship uh, and to implement new ideas and 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 wash away a lot of the things that they didn't understand and thought were old-fashioned. So Carlos III is considered by some people, including uh the, the, the eminent historian Charles Esdale as one of the uh what you call it um Ultimate enlightened autocrats, ultimate enlightened dictators uh, of the 18th century. What does that mean? That means that he is quite happy with his powers. But because he's an educated man, because he's been influenced by the ideas of enlightened government, he wants to give more autonomy to his people and to his government. And he thinks this is a really good idea. And he in, enacts a great many reforming measures, the famous Bourbon reforms. Uh, a lot of them come in during his reign. And uh, this extends to the colonies in America as well. The, pro- the, the curious thing about the Bourbon reforms is that they fix a lot of things, but they break a lot of things. And because of this, it reeks quite a bit of havoc in the colonies and we don't really have time to get into how they do that but suffice to say that things ran relatively normally in the colonies because they're so far away and the viceroys kind of do their own thing and uh, over time implements uh, the, the Spanish government at home implements certain things to keep them in check but more or less the building blocks are there and then the Bourbons come in and they start to try and fix everything, and of course it breaks as much as it fixes, and that is a, one of the main reasons why you have such a powder keg sitting there when Napoleon rocks up. Um, so, yeah, you're looking into a uh, Spain that is 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 actually trying to be revived. It's actually on the up and up again a little. It looks like it could actually be uh, resuscitated, frankly, uh, by the time Carlos III gets on, and this is despite being dragged into the Seven Years' War by the French. In the worst timing in history, practically, they enter the war literally as the French uh, as New France collapses. And then the British just say, oh, that was bad timing, now we're gonna jump on you. And they take Manila, and worse, they take Havana, the biggest, most important city in the New World for the Spanish at that point. Utter disaster. Um, and it's it's just it just shows everybody in the Spanish Empire that okay, we really weren't ready to do any of this. um, the bright side of things was that the British were quite happy to do a deal to give Havana back uh, for, and they and that was how they got well that treaty was basically how they got Florida, and also the Spanish through a little bit of under-the-table dealing with the French, got Louisiana. So despite losing the war quite dramatically, they actually achieved their greatest territorial extent ever. Because all of a sudden the French say, um, we don't want the British to get their hands on Louisiana, so would you mind holding it for us for a while? And Carlos III is supposed to have looked at a map or something at the extent of it, and he looked at the, at the numbers and what was coming in through New Orleans, and he says, I think my cousin has given altogether a little too much uh he wasn't terribly impressed with it uh and that's that's sort of that's sort of the Spanish Empire as it stands at the second it's been it's been beaten around a bit and it's trying to it's trying to get back
1: to to where it was. Okay so in terms therefore of what the Spanish want in comparison to the French. Um, there's a whole podcast to be done on what the French want after the American Mm -hmm. war, um, which is a a little bit more um, complex than just to stick it to the British. Um, The Spanish, though, what do they want? Is it as simple as, well, look, we want Florida back? Simple as. (laughs) Or or is there more to it?
2: There's a a little more to it. Um, that That does come into it, though. So, the first thing to remember is that the Spanish used to control have a monopolizing control over trade in in their sphere of the new world, um, which is an archaic phrase, I understand, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the, the fact was that over time, since the 1500s and the coming in of the Protestant nations and hostile Catholic nations in, in the sense of the French, uh, they lost that monopoly. There was nothing they could do about it because basically black market smuggling just became impossible to... Um, to to deal with and to be honest with you if you're a good viceroy or a good spanish governor you downright encouraged it because that was good money uh because you might as well try and control it and tax it um if you could so the fact now that the british since uh, 1763 1764 effectively um now controlled all of the gulf coast from the tip of florida all the way to the mississippi Because the confusing thing is that that was the Floridas in those days. Uh, It ran all the way to the Mississippi and as far north as the modern, I think the modern borders of uh, Alabama and and Mississippi and things like that. Uh, And they divided it into proper Florida, what you would call today, most of it is West Florida, with the capital at St. Augustine. And west florida is this weird conglomeration of what today are about three united states states um off from pensacola to baton rouge uh so this line of coast is now controlled by the british the british can put ships in pensacola and mobile harbors and there's there's nothing they can do about it this is Massively problematic economically and strategically, because it also threatens something called the Bahama Channel, which is the the passage that runs between Cuba and the Bahamas, uh, and is one of the easiest ways to get into the Atlantic. The therefore, um, the 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 re, reestablishment of Spanish control over their own monopolies has always been an abiding thing. Also, you have a slight problem uh with uh illegal settlement uh along the along uh central central america and what they used to call the mosquito coast um basically a bunch of british guys uh came down and just started building uh small settlements down there to harvest logwood in the bay of campeche this is uh, something that had been a perennial problem for the spanish since the days of the buccaneers the, unfortunately, logwood, it, which is a special tree, the heart of which is this wonderful uh, red color, it, and was used, I believe, for a dye that was ridiculously expensive in Europe. Obviously, attracted a whole bunch of people who wanted to, um, well, cut it down and ship it off. And they, this is a problem they've been having since the the 1600s to deal with these people on on this particular part of the coast that runs down from Yucatan to uh, Panama. Uh, they knew they were there they just couldn't get rid of them and so when war is looking like it's going to break out uh carlos III's government and his principal ministers and i should have mentioned who was running the show back, back at the beginning but his principal ministers the first of which is the conde de florida blanca uh and he He's he's got this wonderfully elaborate title, which includes the phrase "the the minister of grace and justice." I, just, I do just love Spanish name, uh, governmental names, uh, and the 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 chief minister of the council of the Indies, and uh, also for your information, the that meant that he was in control, effectively what they called the House of the Indies. And that's just got such a wonderful weight to it, doesn't it? But. Um, me casa es su casa, exactly exactly so long as as long as the king is running it anyway the 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 indies are the indies are for the king <laughs> um, anyhow madness aside for the moment uh the his minister for the indies is a gentleman by the name of uh of Jose de Gofes and between these three essentially you get the the war policy for for the the American war, the looming American war, because it's not 100% certain that the Spanish are going to join in. The the French really want them to come in and the French, because, well, we know that France has deep financial problems and the Spanish strangely do and don't, because the Spanish aren't exactly liquid, but they do have a lot of means of raising money when they need it at the moment so the and also a very large fleet uh so the 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 french are very keen to get them on board anyway to to for them to enter the war things have to be promised and the spanish expect to do things a particular way they're going to do it their way the conde de florida blanca is very very firm are not entering this war until it is 100% suiting the Spanish to do so, and that's why they enter it in 1779, and everybody else can take a running jump, because we lost Havana the last time, we just flew into this. So the main things they want are as follows. Gibraltar, they want that back. Manila, they want that back. They want all of the Gulf of Mexico back, and that includes kicking out the British settlements down there they'd really like jamaica as well actually which was lost in the 1650s to cromwell's boys and that's the territorial aspirations of the spanish very clear also we are not allied to the united states of america or whoever the heck they whatever the heck those english people over there are calling themselves at the second because the spanish have deep problems with terminology here because ingles is essentially what they would be calling them you know americano the spanish have americanos you know they have the americas they have the indies so this is a big vernacular problem anyway they don't want to join their side we're going to ally with the french my 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 cousin the king of france i am your ally and we i we're going to sign a treaty saying that this war will not end until the Spanish are satisfied that we have taken Gibraltar or cannot take Gibraltar. Congress loses its mind about this because they were all excited about Spain coming into the war and all this sort
1: of stuff. And they were like... Well, they're desperate for legitimacy at this point, right? And and their legitimacy comes in the form of other states recognising you and saying, look, we are going to work with you and support your cause, which inherently of what you're saying is, is not the Spanish approach. The Spanish approach is look, it's a bit like what the, the British do during the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, look, there's a nation that's been conquered by Napoleon. We're going to need to capitalise on this situation by going and seizing their their um, colonies. I mean, it's not quite the same, obviously, but it's, oh, look, my enemy's weak. I'm going to go and snaffle some stuff. Um, it's a technique that the British do really very well and they're having the tables turned on them. But as you say, from uh, a from the perspective of the the revolutionaries. This is, you think you're kind of. I mean, okay, there's a, there's a benefit here to the fact that look, it's just going to divide Britain even more and weaken Britain even more, and and therefore has a strategic benefit. But from a state building perspective, that's a real kick in the nuts.
2: Yes, it is. they they weren't really happy about it at all, um, because what it did was it tied the war aims of Congress to the war aims of Spain which was something that they had no control over. In fact, their diplomats couldn't even really get audiences in Spain to to sort out any formal treaty or anything like that. Uh, Now, I want you to just, uh, I need to come back to something in a moment, and that is the pro-Spanish neutrality angle rather than the official Spanish neutrality angle. But the point is that, officially speaking, we are at war with the British, allied to the French, and we are neutral to the United States. Uh, it is in one of the instructions sent out to governors in the Indies that we owe nothing to the Americans except basically what is owed uh, in terms of hospitality. Uh, everybody will be treated equally uh, by either side, uh, basically.
1: These are Mm. Ask, sorry to cut you off. Can I just ask about the practicalities of that? So if they received um, some request for assistance by the revolutionary forces from congressional forces, the direct order to the Spanish is do not help the people who are at war with the British. Just attend to Spanish affairs and just leave them, even if that means the British gain a strategic advantage.
2: It's never spelled out quite that specifically. It's deliberately uh, worded in such a way that the governors can make decisions for themselves. However, when this instruction was written, war had not properly been declared yet, and they wanted to make sure they could still get the drop on the British. So first of all, there is that consideration, the fact that they didn't want to tip off the British too early that what they were going to do. And therefore they told their governors it just, you can trade with the Americans uh, and the British, and, if they, and you just have to keep the peace. The other thing, though, is that Spain is a colonial empire itself, and it's not 100% comfortable with outright showing the way to throw off imperial power. It's already had problems in Louisiana. Uh, 1768, 1769 is what they call the Creole Rebellion, which is where the French Creoles uh, rise up and say, we don't like the Spanish. We just got you know someone someone wrote a treaty and now we're on now we're all Spanish. What's going to happen? They're going to force us to, the, the, the Creole gentry hated the, the first Spanish governor. And they had this list of things that they thought he was going to make them do, like he was going to flood the market with tortillas and make them all have siestas and things like
1: that. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I have to say, I'm I'm not uh, apologies to to listeners who will be outraged by this. I'm not a fan of the tortilla. Now, this is not a reason <laughs> no, to rise up no, in rebellion no, no, against exactly. the government, but. Um, being being resistant to the tortilla is something that i i can cognitively <laughs> understand um were, were there other grievances beso- besides sort of the the, ab- the the aberration of of the tortilla? uh
2: it's as 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 triste amigo es triste uh <laughs> <laughs> the... Yes. Yes. They didn't like the, he was, he was just, he was a a difficult man to, to get along with. He, he didn't work well with people. He was actually a brilliant man, something close to a genius possibly. And he just made everybody know that I'm smarter than you. So he rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He also, um, imported a a beautiful Peruvian wife rather than marry a uh, French, Louisiana Creole. And she, Dazzled everybody so much that they defended all their wives. It's really quite petty, but at the at the at the core of it is that they just they wanted the French king back, and they ousted the French governor, uh, the Spanish governor, uh, and uh, this brought down the wrath of the Spanish Empire on New Orleans. They dispatched uh, the Conde de O'Reilly, uh, who is a uh, you know as you as the name suggests, one of the many Irish. Uh, people of Irish descent in the Spanish army, and he went out there and he, he laid down the law. It, it, it wasn't um, sort of re- oppression by massacre, but he did like plant the flag and say, we're not going to force you to eat tortillas because we're Spanish, not Mexicans, but you're going to toe the line because we are in charge now, or, well, I'm going to toss you on to the Mississippi. So they weren't happy with creole populations just asserting themselves and they didn't like so so it was it was it was a delicate thing to do to support congress outright likewise in 1781 you have the biggest rebellion in uh the americas uh break out in peru uh, in, and this is the the rebellion of tupac amaru II massive inca rebellion in which practically the entire andes uh population of indios Uh, Rise up and basically try to overthrow the government and uh, create a neo-Inca empire, practically in the name of King in in, in the name of Carlos III. Weirdly enough, I'm not going to lie;
1: I do like the sound of an Inca rebellion when it's at home. It it sounds a lot of fun. Remind me of the year of that. 1781. 1781. We're doing an episode on that. It's happening. You're not getting a choice. Um, (laughs) But back to the present. Well, (laughs) well, I say back to the present, back to the past. But the the same year, in fact, 1781 you were saying so you're getting
2: you're absolutely having creole problems and grassroots problems so to speak throughout the spanish empire it's not as steady as people would like it to be so that's another reason why the instruction is neutrality towards the united states we fight the British on the side of the french that way everything's sort of clear if to address this the main question if Congress comes and says, we want to sort out uh, a multi-pronged strike somewhere. Uh, The governor is supposed to basically prevaricate and then do it himself. Until the Americans give up. But supposing he hasn't got the forces at his disposal. Then he should prevaricate until he does. um, Or just allow the Americans to do it and then softly support him with money and guns and stuff. Uh, the, the the supporting of America because this is this ties into with what I was saying before. There's an official line, and then there's the sub the sort of the the the, re- the practical line.
1: Well, yeah, because if you're supporting, apologies to keep interrupting you here, but uh, no, am no. I'm, I'm, I'm turning this more into a conversation down the pub. Not that we drink, but you know what <laughs> I mean. Um, if you're providing financial or um, mu- munitional munition. Mm munitionary yeah. um guns as support, then you inherently are not neutral. It is a, you, <laughs>
2: it, one is historian it, calls it a pro-American neutrality is what it effectively becomes because especially in Louisiana where um Bernardo de Galtos, uh the the mighty chief of the Indies's uh nephew is governor, he he, He is tasked... He's on the front line, essentially, of the Spanish Empire of this because Louisiana borders right up against the Mississippi. And this is how he deals with it. He basically... funnels money and guns and weapons and stuff up the Mississippi. He does this... and gets away with it because the americans buy it or promise to buy it or like you know negotiate to pay for it the agent in new orleans is a gentleman by the name of oliver pollock and he basically bankrupts himself financing a good portion of the american revolution and galvez helps him out all he can because the secret instruction is to to aid the americans because they're the enemies of the british just don't let everybody know that we're aiding the americans and we can't send armies to fight with them unless the french are involved it's very complicated and it's sort of a a a symptom of of the state the spanish empire is in it's not sort of confident enough just to take the side like to of the americans like the french do because the french don't have colonial possessions over there anymore anyway so the the It's all done sort of under the table. It's a pro-American neutrality. Actual physical armies cannot march in support of Congress's armies, but they can sell weapons and munitions and supplies to Congress's armies. And uh, actually, uh, this is a huge thing for the Americans, actually. They... They get a lot of material support between seventeen seventy seven and seventeen seventy nine from Louisiana, and uh, this is this is part of the whole Cold War sort of bit before the Spanish actually enter the war, and then you get the weird thing that the that Congress, who is thinking, oh well, maybe they're actually going to come on our side after all and actually help us out get this sort of slap in the face by, by the Spanish saying, no, no, we're still neutral. We're not actually going to go and conquer stuff with you. Um, we, we we wish you all the best, but we have our business
1: to, to be getting along with. What I'm struggling with here is that surely there needs to be a treaty at the end of this. And if you want stability of your newly acquired holdings around the Gulf of Mexico, you need the the force on the other side of this, on the 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 other side of the land Mm. border, to recognise the legitimacy of what you've just acquired, which
2: yeah that that actually does become a massive problem as you're probably well aware by the 1800s, borders around the south don't mean a great deal and illegal immigration into Spanish territories from the Anglo, we'll call it, territories is is a big problem. Uh, so it does come back to bite them. This lack of clarity in terms of how they established, reestablished themselves in in North America. However, at the time, it it was a fairly sensible course of action, uh, and it suited them, that government at that time, well to do this. Uh, the 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 treaty, basically, the Spanish saw the Americans as so needy that once the war was over, there would be a treaty anyway, and they wanted to kind of see how the cards fell one way or another. For, for Congress's part, it needs to be said, actually, that the very presence of the Spanish in the Bourbon alliance, the very presence of, uh, you know, armed Spain in the conflict almost ensured independence actually Uh, quite a lot of scholars basically say that for the the french entering was was pretty bad um but the british could probably deal with it once the spanish enter it it's actually game over there is going to be an independent united states what it looks like is not clear the british may still be able to hold on to bits but congress can now actually start thinking about you know we're going to survive and there will be a treaty with britain because now we're just this coalition is too powerful
1: yeah it's interesting what you tap into on the spanish side of things you know that sense that actually perhaps the spanish have the upper hand because um they're an empire not some fledgling nation of inverted commas rebels who have broken away from britain and and all the rest of it is actually a, a concept echoed back in britain there are some people who kind of think well if we lose the war the these these rebels are going to come crawling back to us in the end anyway, because they, they can't build their own state and survive on their own without us. With they, they might have come, some of them from Britain, but they need the benefits of good old King George's rule. If people haven't picked up the irony from that, I'm afraid there's very little I can do to help you. Um, but there there is that kind of very patronising um, you need a, a European power to support you mentality. Um, so perhaps it's not so surprising that they're kind of looking at this thinking, well, well, we'll be the dominant player anyway. So, you know, we'll just hold this. We don't we don't need a formal treaty. Um, and as you say, you know, maybe they'll come running to us. Okay, I'm going to push us on a little bit. The outbreak of the war, 1779. How, obviously, it, it, as I said in the intro, it's two years before we get to Pensacola. What's going on in those two years? uh
2: the the gentleman i mentioned before bernardo de galvez governor of louisiana is let off his leash and he sort of runs wild across british possessions in west florida and the british don't see it coming they they partly by design the spanish planned their declaration of war very well they timed it extremely well they had news out to the colonies about a month or two in advance of the declaration of war. So all their guys could be ready. And, you know, they were in Florida Blanca played it brilliantly. Um, he was in Supreme command. He was, and he was also entertaining, you know, peace negotiations. He, he, like for a while, he was like sort of toying with the British saying, you know, if you just give me Gibraltar, Maybe we don't get involved. I don't know
1: (laughs) what what she got. Um, But yeah, see, this is just vindicating our gangster, gangster (laughs) kind of theme at the start. That that was always the plan. The the underhand, gangsterish machinations is 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 what underpins this episode. All we did was demonstrate the running theme. There we go. It, it, It was it was always. We can edit out all the rest of it. It was always meant to be there.
2: Absolutely, it wasn't just just random insanity. No, the um Bernal de Galvez had been planning for this war since practically he became governor. Um, most there were quite a lot of people in the colonies, especially in New Spain, Louisiana, and Cuba that thought that there were there was going to be a war eventually. They just needed to wait for it. And Galvez was uh preparing for this moment for a good few years and he was very worried to be honest that the government in Spain would misplay it and that the British would get the drop on him because Louisiana didn't have a massive garrison it was very big and if the British attacked him first the the, every other governor including O'Reilly had basically said We will use Louisiana to insulate the rest of the Spanish Empire. It will be a sponge that sucks up any British attack. Abandon New Orleans, practically. Don't bother trying to defend it, because we don't have enough men or resources to do so. Galvez, first of all, thought that way. And then he thought, but what if I attack first? So that's what he did. Uh, As soon as he got word that they were going to war, he was... He was gathering arms and munitions and getting the militia up to scratch and mobilizing the regular garrison. Um, and he first struck into what you might call Florida on the Mississippi. And uh, this was called, this is, this is a famous moment in his career and in the Spanish campaign. It was called the La Marcha de Galvez, uh, where he went overland through the swamps, with a with a small army of Creoles and uh, freed freemen and Native Americans, a whole polyglot little tiny army of like a, just about a thousand five hundred men or something like that. Uh, in the wake of a hurricane that had devastated his original plans, um, he just shrugged that off and said, uh, "Just just raise he just raised those ships from the bottom of the." Of the Mississippi, um, rearm the men, dry out the powder. We're we'll, we'll we're still going; it's just a bit delayed. And he he led them over to to Manchac. Men were dropping like flies from disease, and he threw the militia at it. They took it, and then he rocks up to Baton Rouge, and there he finds a fort uh, which is filled with uh, wall deckers from Germany and some of uh, the Royal Americans and it's a bit of a tough nut to crack and he displays an interesting facet of what is otherwise a very audacious nature uh here where he he recognizes that his mostly volunteer force cannot just be flung at these walls and slaughtered for a greater cause and he does this ridiculous thing. i i want to just take a pause here and, and make sure now we'll, we'll talk about him later but the man is ridiculous I I cannot stress enough how ridiculous this man is um but anyway it, as if it was some sort of a novel he observes a small grove of trees that has not been properly cleared but instead of thinking that's where i will build my principal battery he identifies a garden on the other side of the fort And thinks to himself, well, now, if I was the British, I would expect me to go into that grove of trees there and start bombarding them from it. So I'll put on a show for them. And so he sends his his black militia and some of his white militia and uh, and his Native American allies over there to make an awful ruckus and cut down trees as if they're building breastworks. And basically, he tells them, make a lot of noise. And they do. And they get fired at all through the night. Uh, by the British garrison. And then in the morning, the British look out to the grove of trees and they're like, there's no cannons there. Did we win? Uh, And lo, a magic battery has appeared behind them in the opposite direction, which is now opening fire on the walls and makes a breach and forces them to surrender. In a matter of weeks, all of the Mississippi side of West Florida has been taken by a tiny Spanish force before the British even know that war has actually been declared and before the governor in Pensacola or the commander-in-chief in in Pensacola can even gather their wits. Now, it's no longer about preparing to attack New Orleans, which was actually the idea. They were were going to attack it from Detroit and from Pensacola. They were gonna come down the river and along the coast take New Orleans and knock them out before they could start, but the Galvez landed the first punch, and now they have to defend Mobile. Galvez takes his guys back because he's conquered everything, um, and, he, and he reorganizes for the next year. It's 1780 now, he's got some reinforcements from Havana, and he leads a small flotilla of boats, still mostly the Louisiana garrison at the second uh, out into the Gulf of Mexico, gets hit by a typhoon, it gets scattered, he goes on anyway, um, and then, this is, he's, he, he can, he can sometimes overreach himself, because he gets himself in quite a spot here, he tries to cross Mobile Bar with his ships, but they, most of them ground, and some of them start to sink, so he, Unloads all of his supplies and men onto the sandbar essentially and onto the, the bit of the co- the nearest part of the coast. And his his second in command, uh Hieronimo de Moctezuma, and point of information, yes, he is related to the last emperor of the Aztecs, uh, his major general there, uh, said that the men were practically naked, in that way the 18th century people like to say that they had they were like their clothes were <laughs> their clothes were not neat. And so at this point, the British in uh, Mobile, uh, F- uh, Fort Charlotte Mobile, um, think they've just got really lucky. Uh, reports are coming in of 700 Spanish mer- soldiers drowning uh, off Mobile Bar. And Galvez is indeed in a worrying position because if I think it's his name is Dernford. uh could take his admittedly quite small garrison and act with it offensively. He could be in serious trouble. Luckily, the rumours of the scale of the disaster are so bad that the British don't seem to respond in any any uh, effective way. So he is given time to re reorganise. He gra- he hauls his guns onto the onto the sand. Uh, a reinforcement then. Uh, providentially arrives from Havana, and they go and attack Mobile. At this point, Campbell, General Campbell, who is the commander-in-chief in Pensacola, tries to relieve Mobile. Um, he hasn't really done much up to this point. The garrison isn't particularly big. The fort is actually kind of old, and it's an open question as to why after Baton Rouge and everything had fallen, uh more troops have not been committed to repairing and fortifying Mobile, but this is just what it this is just how it was. Troops in Florida it has to be said were not thick on the ground uh he leads an expedition out to try and relieve Mobile. He gets there about two, three days before the fort falls, and uh he has to march all the way back. Galvez is Called off another ridiculous success against a lot of odds. He's actually kind of hopping mad at the end because he can't uh, chase Campbell back to Pensacola and try and cut him off, uh, because uh, the the ships from Havana and the Havana reinforcements are not keen on the idea. Uh, so again, that is where the campaigning ends, seventeen eighty. All of British West Florida, except for Pensacola, has been retaken by the Spanish practically before the British can even mount a proper response.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: I mean, it's it's staggering in its effectiveness. Um, we do need to, to keep the momentum, though, I guess, rather than sort of rabbit-holing in, in what happens prior. So... Pensacola itself, why does it matter in the grand scheme of things? It's, it's, it's the principal city and port of
2: West Florida. It marks, therefore, the last section of West Florida that needs conquered for the the ongoing campaign to recapture the Gulf Coast. It's relatively well defense, defensible, but... Uh, Uh, the spanish had it used to be a spanish possession so they knew quite a bit about it but it presented a number of problems in terms of how how it can be fortified there there had been surveys of it going back into the 1650s but it had always been considered an important place along the gulf coast and one of the reasons that the Spanish felt threatened by it was that they didn't want another New Orleans to crop up in someone else's hands. So, in terms of of goals of recapturing the Gulf Coast, removing the possibility of creating another New Orleans in enemy hands was very important. Uh, and it was a it was a, it was a good harbor. It was a it was a port. You couldn't just leave it. And go and attack Jamaica from this point uh, because it it's pre- it 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 needed taken. It was a requirement because if you leave it alone, what's going to happen is Campbell's going to get his forces together. He's going to get reinforcements from somewhere. Well, actually, he's going to get reinforcements from a very specific area actually, and he's going to reconquer everything that has just been taken by the Spanish. And he actually proves this uh, in early seventeen
1: eighty one. Okay, and in terms of the <clears throat> what's on the the British side, what are we actually talking about? It's not a particularly big force because that's the American War of Independence, right? None of these are huge forces by the the standards of European armies during this period, and particularly the the, the standard of the Napoleonic era.
2: Yeah, it's not very big. It's but it is the biggest fort and. Uh, I suppose defensive defense force garrison that Galvez has encountered so far. Campbell rather wisely, in a way, decided that there was no way he was going to be able to play catch up with Galvez between seven. 1779 1780 and actually put the the fairly strained resources of the of the territory into uh, into the defenses of Pensacola instead of trying to actually hold Mobile or something like that, which is actually kind of that kind of makes sense he knows that the Spanish are going to eventually come for Pensacola so why not sort of see if we can hold the other places and instead put our money and troops into into here. That being said, he has lost a lot of men as prisoners by this point, so it's not all going rosy in this in this grand scheme, but he has about 2,000 men at Pensacola. Um, this has actually been a fluctuating number because all the way through 1780, uh, he has had about 1,500 allied Native American tribes hanging out at Pensacola because he has been... Uh, fairly certain that Galvez is going to come and attack him and the most readily available source of manpower are warriors from the Muscogee uh, confederacy, otherwise known as the Creeks, the Choctaws and the Chickasaws, who are the three main uh, nations inhabiting the, the southeast and south of what is currently the United States. There's also the Seminoles, but they're technically um, just breaking off from the creeks slash uh, and so it's 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 sort of a fine line at the second. but um the that huge bulk of manpower uh, sort of just sort of diminishes away through the summer and into the winter of of seventeen eighty in the early 1781, naturally, because they have to go home at some point and the Spanish just aren't showing up for reasons we we can get into. Um, And Campbell just doesn't know how to deal with these people. He has a very effective um, uh, Department of Indian Affairs in the South. It's been run uh, up to this point, basically on a very, very generous model based on, early ideas of um keeping the the allied nations happy by lavishing them with presents and gifts and things like that and basically paying for them to stay where they are which is completely fair really because if you if you send your fighting manpower down to help the british fight these other europeans then well you should be paid for it you should be compensated that was what the indian department pretty much sort of reasoned was a fair thing to do but campbell uh wanted to cut costs they were admittedly incredibly expensive it was an incredibly expensive policy and he was happy to see the back of them so long as there wasn't a threat of spanish invasion coming Uh, and this is essentially he sent a lot of the warriors home uh because as well he he had no respect for them he whenever the Spanish show up, he sends he sends emissaries out. Please stop hunting, come and help us fight the Spanish. And then he reports to Whitehall that these people are awful savages and you can't rely on them and stuff like that. <laughs> um uh, it's it's a complete mess and a complete misuse of probably his best weapon, to be honest, because this Galvez knew how many warriors were there, and he was not happy about it because the the terrain across the Gulf Coast is is not conducive to regular warfare, and Galvez had a particular horror of irregular warfare as well. He'd experienced it firsthand. He didn't like it, and he didn't want to have to deal with it. He actually wrote a letter to Campbell asking him, "Can we keep this between the Europeans? Because uh, uh, I think the censure of humanity will come down on us if we use the if we use the in quotes savages in in our own warfare." Campbell very logically just replied, I would be an idiot, basically, if I didn't use every means at my disposal to defend my post. And Galvez then made a point of not really using Native Americans to to fight on his side. He just just, uh, asked them to go hunting for him now and again. Um, So it's a large garrison. It's well defended. It has a lot of earthworks around it. It has one fatal flaw, though, that is going to allow Galvez to get in
1: oh come on you can't give us a a teaser like that (laughs) and then just stop come on man keep going
2: (laughs) this is how you keep them interested
1: okay um
2: so i mentioned before that there had been surveys done of pensacola for the purposes of fortifying it during the 1650s and into the early 1700s by the spanish and the french and the the case was that Campbell has successfully placed large earthworks on a low hill above the town, which would be sufficient to defend it from the land. To defend it from the sea, you need to actually defend the entrance to the harbor, which sits on the Gulf of Mexico, the actual inlet, the passage through over the bar. To do that, you have to raise a battery on what they called las Barrancas Coloradas, or red cliffs, And Campbell was very proud. He was writing back to Clinton and Whitehall that I have emplaced um, a battery of 32 pounder guns on this point, and it commands the entire uh, passage entryway into Pensacola Bay. The problem was that this passage is just about, is something over a mile long. And that is an extreme range for uh, an iron gun, whether it's a 32-pounder or a 12-pounder, pretty much. You're looking at that's the excess of what it can throw a ball at. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the passage, there is the beginning of what is called Santa Rosa Island, which is a beautiful strip of coral sand, that runs all the way along the Gulf Coast to the way it curves down into Florida. And um, there's a massive amount of fireworks going off because it's Diwali. Happy Diwali, everybody. Um, anyway, the edge of this island is called Sequenza Point. And the Spanish have known for a long time that if you want to defend the entrance to Pensacola, you need a battery on Red Cliffs, Barrancas, Coloradas, and you need a battery on Sequenza Point. So you can cover both sides, and nothing is going to get through the weight of shot that's going to come at that. Defending Santa Rosa Island is a complete nightmare because it's really long, so you actually have to defend the entire strand. And because it's made of this just incredibly white, blinding sand, it's very difficult to to drive or um, to to drive foundations that are not going to get washed away. And in fact, actually, maintaining fortifications in West Florida is a nightmare in itself. Because the wood rots within two or three years. And so you need to replace it all the time, which is why Fort Charlotte had been and Mobile had been built of brick. Um, even, even then that rots away, that, that sort of crumbles to dust eventually as well. West West Florida was a very wasteful place to keep garrisons. And there wasn't a lot of money, so a lot of stuff got made of wood and it got eaten away. So there is no battery. Except a watchtower and a partially constructed one on Sequenza Point on Santa Rosa Island, the other side of the entrance to Pensacola Bay. Galvez thinks there is one there, or assumes there is one then, because he's a principled commander. And so he thinks he's going to have a real fight on his hands to get the ships through. However, Campbell has only been able to build the battery on the La Barrancas Coloradas, which spoiler
1: alert is actually cited also too high. Oh, damn, as they say. Um, yes. so so lots not likely to go well. Um talk us through the early operations then and also the difficulties that the Spanish encounter because this isn't a one-sided affair.
2: There are a lot of difficulties the Spanish have to overcome to get this thing moving, one of which is semi-political at Havana. Galvez spends a lot of time through the rest of 1780, early 1781, arguing with the authorities in Havana to give him the men to go out and attack Pensacola, a massive hurricane which comes sweeping through the Caribbean. I should say that the hurricane year of 1780 is literally on record as one of the deadliest in history, possibly the deadliest single hurricane year in history. And it actually blew through his initial uh, invasion force and and it had to go back to Havana. So he's had massive delays in that. He has difficult, uh, and he has to contend with the navy not really wanting to play ball with him either spanish navy there uh, under i get, uh, is is not under army control they both have their own responsibilities he doesn't have control of the army uh, sorry the navy the navy doesn't have control of the army they're supposed to work together however um it's sort of a recipe for big problems ahead that the spanish navy has to protect its own ships as well as try and protect the army and the army's main goal is to try and get into action so there's that problem there's also the problem that he only has enough supplies so says the um, like the commissary general uh, for about three months for about 4,000 men and Galvez does keep that in mind as he goes forward but he thinks that should be enough as long as he gets the support he needs Right off the bat, he gets he, hes very happy and surprised to find that he can just occupy Santa Rosa Island without a fight. There are no fortifications there. There's just a handful of uh, sentinels that get captured, and so, okay, stage one complete. We have a camp. Uh, he establishes a camp in uh, March of 1781, and the the fleet anchors in in the lee of Santa Rosa Island and they can begin surveying the the harbor from there and, and starting to make and start to make plans the next stage is to try and get the ships from the gulf coast into pensacola bay this is another problem that he has to overcome because galvez has actually had spies running around the british territories for uh, quite a long time and so he almost knows pensacola better than the british do but the the the, the spanish navy who uh, are commanded by Jefe uh, de um Jose de Calvo? He doesn't think his ships can get over Pensacola Bar. the The main thing going for the British at this point is actually the geography. There is a bar. There's a there's a there, there is a portion of shallow water running across the entrance that large ships can't get across. They'll ground on it, and this is what happened when Calvo tried to lead his uh flagship the San Ramon, over the bar it it touched bottom. he came under fire from Barrancas Colorados um and uh, when he got off he he turned the entire column around and sent it and got it back into the safety of Santa Rosa Island. galvez is now kind of getting kind of jumpy about getting hit by storms and stuff like that, and he's very worried that the British are going to send a fleet out and knock his his link with Havana out of the war, so he's he's really trying to think, how can I get the navy to just get across this bar, which I know can be done, I've seen the maps. Um, while he's thinking of this, his, his good friend and colleague, uh, Jose de Espeleta, who is uh, the guy in command of Mobile, arrives with reinforcements, about 500 men, and they and they get uh, over to uh they kind of cut off the barrancas Colorados from the rest of Pensacola. That's good news, but he but he he, he still has this problem with the navy, and he overcomes it in a rather dramatic way he he, his his chief of engineers was sent out and um, ordered to do a lot of digging uh, at the edge of Santa Rosa Island. The battery on the Barrancas Coloradas was supposed to uh, well, well opened fire on him, obviously, and this confirmed to Galvez that those cannons are sighted far too high. He watched the fall of the shot, and so he he clocked that okay, this is doable. So what he did was the next day, pretty much, he um, he, he sent one of the engineers with a thirty-two pounder cannonball onto the San Ramon, and informed the, the the chief of squadron that the governor of Louisiana is going in, and he's going to face these cannonballs, and he plops it down on the deck, and those with honor and courage can follow him. So this is just a gauntlet in the face of the navy, and and, and uh, Chief Chief Calvo loses his mind because this is done in front of the entire ship's company, and he rails and rants and calls Galvez a traitor and that he'll be hanged hanged for this for endangering the king's ships. But Galvez is in control of the Louisiana squadron, the little squadron uh, of little flotilla of ships from the Mississippi. And they merrily go across the bar under fire, just a bit of uh, damage to the rigging, and they're into Pensacola Harbor. And of course, now the frigate captains of the Spanish squadron are like, "Uh, Sir, we have to go now because we look like cowards and idiots. We have no choice. Uh, Long story short, Calvo does allow them to cross, but does not go himself. Uh, And some people think that this is just because he's so angry with Galvez, he just straight returns to Havana. But to be honest, that's just how it looks, because actually the San Ramon is too big to get over the bar. So this is the first major obstacles dealt with. The Spanish are now in the harbour with their ships they ferry the the force from Cuba onto the mainland to link up the, with the Louisiana force, and now they have the ability to march, onto, march against the forts that guard Pensacola. And then uh, overcoming them becomes the next trial of the siege.
1: Okay, so it sounds like quite a complex operation, to say the least. Um, so... I guess the the next question is sort of how effective are the British in defending it? And how do we get to a point where Pensacola actually falls? Because given all of this complexity, you'd you'd think that actually maybe the British are going to win this one. You do get that impression. You do get this absolute sense that
2: General Campbell should have played his cards a bit more aggressively and should have been sending strike forces out in in small boats. He did have two small sloops at his disposal. Not that they were of any use once the Spanish uh, frigates got over the bar, but nevertheless he had them. Uh, He had he still had 500 choctaws with him. He had um, he had he had a decent large, well-equipped garrison. They could have been acting offensively but they didn't. They didn't touch uh, a single Spaniard until Galvez moves directly against Pensacola uh, in March, no, uh, in April uh, of 1781, uh, when he tries to establish siege camps uh, that will be uh, convenient, conveniently situated, so as to then construct batteries and trenches and stuff like that. That's when the actual fighting properly starts and grows in intensity as Galvez picks a spot, realises it's bad, moves it, and then does it again, all the while being harried by uh, mostly the Choctaws. Uh, um, and this is a bone of contention as well from the Choctaw war chief, uh, François um who is a renowned war leader, and he had helped the British uh, try and defend the Mississippi as well. And he took them to task actually he he called a meeting with the the Indian agents and he basically said you know we can run around we can kill as many of them as you want but if you're not going to support us then there's only so much we can do uh and suitably chastened Campbell did promise to support the the war bands more effectively but he just had this way of offending Everybody who tried to help him, especially if they were a Native American. And he unlike unlike some European officers who could get a rapport going with the war chiefs and things like that and get them on their side and treat them like allies, Campbell just treated them like auxiliaries that would do whatever they were told because he thought they were basically just in it for the money and uh, they would do as they were told, rather than them being there because they wanted to be in return for supplies. So there's a misuse of a very good um, body of men used to harassing the Spanish. And that's what they do. Uh, every night there's a, usually an attack on the Spanish camp. Galvez actually has to fortify his camp. And he is wounded, actually, in the, in the, in the hand and across the abdomen by a musket ball during one of the skirmishes. And it, uh, it, actually, gives, it actually forces him to take a back seat uh, for a, a good deal of the siege. So I wouldn't say, to be honest, that the British, although having the capability to do a great deal of damage to the Spanish, actually take advantage of it. I don't think that until actually the Spanish start trying to dig their trenches and batteries, that they actually uh, sort of,
1: you
2: know, stick the oar in, so to speak.
1: So the surrender, how does it come about?
2: yeah right i should have i should have gone on as well i shouldn't i i should have talked how you get to the siege well those try well those two it it sort of leads into the other because um the spanish there's, there's a heavy bit of skirmishing and fighting as the spanish try and and dig their trenches and and create their batteries and the result of this is a is a fairly short period at the end of april and into the beginning of may where the spanish successfully force uh force the British off the land that they want to, to construct their earthworks on, and then they start hauling out the guns, and they get a big reinforcement from Havana, which includes a, a actually a French contingent, and the British now know they're going to come under bombardment and. The, the Spanish have been able to do this with uh, with actually re- remarkably few casualties because Galvez has not just exposed his troops to the fire of the British guns. And now the big 18 pounders are brought up into the batteries, uh, covering batteries are built and mortar beds are dug. There is a British sally but overruns a portion of the trenches at one point. This is the only time this happens, and it's done out of desperation because Campbell senses that soon he's going to lose one of his fortifications uh, because the Spanish are just getting too many guns up and too many troops in. So he he finally realizes he has to do something, but it's a bit late because within the next week, you've already had a very dangerous um, event occur where, a shell lands in one of the batteries as powder is being um, distributed for cartridges, and it blows up a caisson. This is spookily close. I think it's like within one or two days of what happens next, where uh, at the end of the first week of May, a shell fired from one of the Spanish howitzers bounces off one of the um, shell-proof roofs, as they called it, uh, and landed in the open doorway of the main magazine of the Forward Redoubt.
1: Oh dear, Almeida vibes right there. Yep.
2: Yep. Yep. Single biggest loss of casualties to the British of the entire siege, unimaginable horror of Uh, large amounts of powder going up, and uh, the fortifications catching on fire. Nobody expected this to happen. All the Spanish... As it went up, there's just this collective pause in all the accounts as everybody just sort of takes in the horror of it for a second, and then everybody's moving. All the, the Spanish major generals, the guys in charge of the trenches, Galvez is out, uh, grenadiers are mustered, light infantry are mastered, the engineer gathers his guys, his sappers together with their axes and firefighting equipment, and column, and Spanish columns press out towards the forward redoubt, the forward redoubt cannot be held, the royal artillery fire, uh, you know, fight their guns as long as they can, they spike those they can't save, and um, the, the place is evacuated, you know, whoever is left alive. There is actually an interesting story inside this. Um, there is, uh, but I, d- there's an interesting story of a, f- of, a, of a female figure, which is quite rare in the siege, a camp follower of sorts who helped fight the guns. And because I want to sell the book, I, I want you to read this in the book because we're running out of time anyway. But it's, a, it's an amazing story. And you wanna know, say something?
1: I was just gonna say that this is a very good point at which to encourage people to go direct to Hellion um and and get the book and, and I make no apologies for the fact that Josh is dangling little carrots in front of you um in order to encourage you to go and buy it. Um but yeah, do you wanna move on at this point to talk about yes, exactly. the legacy?
2: Because this is this is literally how the siege ends That goes up and the British surrender. And because there's nothing they can do about it, and Galvez is generous and allows them to come out with the honors of war.
1: In terms of overall legacies of taking Pensacola, what's the impact of it?
2: The impact is is very sort of military in its tone. Uh, it it completes realistically the reconquest of the Gulf because. Although West Florida is still intact for the British, there is now no expectation that if the Spanish choose, that it can be held. Basically, they assume the Spanish can take it whenever they want. They have the ships, they have over 7,000 men available and it's it's not going to stand, especially because Cornwallis and everybody are running around the Carolinas at the second, and nobody's paying attention to West Florida, whether it's Jamaica, New York, or uh the Carolinas. Nobody is listening to Campbell asking for help except for the Native Americans, but Campbell doesn't want their help so the this uh, the legacy of it is sadly not great first of all because it's been allowed to, it was allowed to drift into obscurity as a very sort of un-American event in the American Revolution, and because the war ended uh, effectively with the siege of Yorktown in October of 1781. However, the fact that it ended in May of 1781 did free up all those Spanish troops and generals and planners to go back and start planning other conquests. There was a real expectation that if the war had continued, they would have attacked Jamaica. The fact that the Gulf Coast, at least the the Gulf, yeah, the fact that the Gulf Coast was essentially now again in Spanish control, there were no more forts on that side, meant that a whole sort of economic bubble had appeared where yankee traders could come down the mississippi if they so wished into friendly or at least neutral ports away from the the gaze of the british blockade big that's a big thing if the war was going to continue uh into uh nobody knew it was going to end at the end of 1781 1782 but this is this is why it could have been very significant and a lot of gold gets freed up. You know, a lot of resources are no longer being funneled to the Gulf Coast campaign. De Grasse, Admiral De Grasse, who is off wanting to go and attack Yorktown um, with Washington, tells the King's Spanish Kings Commissioner Francisco de Saavedra that I don't have any money. I can't put to sea and I can't defend Saint-Domingue uh, and go and attack the British in the Carolinas. So Saavedra says, Well, we have ships and we're not going to be aiding the Americans directly, so we'll watch San Domingue for you. And by the way, here's 500,000 pesos. So you go to sea and you go and help the Americans. Then, uh, a few months after that, 1 million pesos becomes available due to the voluntary fund, war fund that was collected uh, in the name of the king shortly after the, the war broke out and that is sent directly to the French army at Yorktown under Rochambeau. So it's incidental that Pensacola happens to end and, you know, there's no longer a draw for this sort of money. It can easily be funneled to the French, Uh, but it is important nonetheless. And it's very important, significant that de Grasse could not have actually put to sea without the Spanish uh, money.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. That is The Siege of Pensacola. Josh, a massive thank you once again for coming on in short order as well to um, to talk us through this one. Folks, Every Hazard and Fatigue is available from hellion.co.uk. Please go direct to the website in order to get it. It's something you need to add to your list. I'm sure by now you've got Josh's other books. You need this one. Um, and, hey, you've got that teaser that you now need to go and investigate so what find, more incentive could you find out the stories
2: in? yeah please do come and find out the stories it's been really fun bringing them to you uh there is there, it, it, this was the longest siege in north america uh and it is is really difficult to go into all the details that i go into in
1: the book in a podcast so i hope
2: that uh, i hope that you enjoy it
1: josh it's always a joy speaking to you thank you so much for your time
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for 1 million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout-outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greave, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani... Ulrich Dicardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Greylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinski, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgy, Bretto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore, <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn, And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, JC Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin. Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Wilcom, Steve Carter and Clemens. I'll be back very soon. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.